0: Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hey everyone, here is a special South by Southwest episode from my new podcast, Unconfirmed Insights and Analysis from the Top Minds in Crypto. If you haven't had a chance to listen or subscribe already, you can check it out here on the Unchained feed. My guest for this special South by Southwest episode is Catherine Hahn, who teaches at the Stanford University Graduate School of Business, is a former DOJ prosecutor who did some of the earliest cases in crypto, and is on the board of directors at Coinbase. We discuss the SEC subpoenas, the FinCEN letter, self-regulation, and whether or not we need to create a crypto specific regulatory agency or industry specific regulations. It's a meaty episode with a lot of insight into how regulators work. If you like the episode, be sure to go to the feed for unconfirmed insights and analysis from the top minds in crypto and subscribe today. Hi everyone, welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. This special South by Southwest episode of Unconfirmed is brought to you by Appreciate. Founded by Ed Stevens, Preciate is building the most valuable relationships on Earth. Today, Appreciate is recognizing an individual for their achievements in the crypto space. Who will be recognized today? Stay tuned to find out. This special South by Southwest episode is also brought to you by QuadStamp. Quantstamp is the first smart contract security auditing protocol designed to secure all smart contracts in a cost-effective and scalable manner. Their team is composed of blockchain and software testing experts who collectively have over 500 Google Scholar citations. To learn more or request an audit, visit quantstamp.com. My guest today is Catherine Hahn, who teaches at the Stanford University Graduate School of Business, is a former DOJ prosecutor who did some of the earliest cases in crypto, and who was on the board of directors at Coinbase. Welcome, Katie. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. So I heard
1: you're teaching a class at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Yes, we're teaching this spring a class on cryptocurrency. And I think one of the really exciting things um, from that class is how many students we have. There's just such an appetite on behalf of the student body for this topic. And I think you also mentioned, is there a long waiting list? There is a long waiting list. Um, and again, I think that's just reflective of the topic and how how energized people are about that. Um, we're having some great guest lecturers also, people like Balaji Srinivasan, Fred Ursham. And I think I just was able to talk Joe Lubin from Consensus into guest lecturing on Ethereum and smart contracts. Oh, great. And uh, you just ran into him at the Ethereal Lounge? I did. Um, and I think that same kind of display of the interest in the topic was was there at the Ethereal clubhouse. It was full of young developers and entrepreneurs who are just so excited about everything that's going on. And it's really energizing. I think my plane reading from back from Austin just got extra loaded up with more reading on airdrops and relays Great. And so what else has been on your mind recently? I know
0: you have this background in government and obviously we've heard that the SEC has been
1: issuing subpoenas to token issuers. What is your take on what's going on? Well, amidst all this excitement I mentioned, I've still continued Mm -hmm. to see the need for more bridges to be built between the way that government regulators are thinking about this technology or these technologies and the way technologists are thinking about them and developers and entrepreneurs. And in terms of the SEC, are you asking about the SEC inquiries in particular? Yeah. Like the yeah. subpoenas that went out? Yeah. What, what do you make of that? Well, so first of all, I think it's important to put this into context, um, because of course, that makes a lot of news in the space. Um, and, it, and it should, because subpoenas are something to take seriously. That said, I think it is important to step back and realize that subpoenas are just the government's way of gathering information. So you feel like this isn't saying anything beyond just the fact that they want to learn more about the space? Well, right now in the context of the was it 80 subpoenas that went out to in the ICO context, There, I think, again, it's not like the SEC can just go and get people to voluntarily hand over documents and talk to the SEC, right? So a subpoena is the way by which the government requests and gathers information. And that doesn't mean that 80 cases or even 80 investigations are going to come out of this. That means this is just the subpoena is how they decide which cases to investigate. Oh, okay.
0: This is sort of like my work as a journalist, I guess, where I interview a bunch of people, but I don't always write articles about everything that I uh, do research on. So I sort of like, you know, choose amongst that background, which cases or which stories might be
1: worth pursuing. Right, you choose the most interesting, right? Right. Um, And is this similar to what you would do at DOJ? No, DOJ is quite different. So getting back to the subpoena, um, at DOJ, actually, a little-known fact is that DOJ, there's a policy actually against issuing targets, subpoenas at all. Oh, interesting. So, for example, if you're the target of a criminal investigation at the Justice Department, our policy or not our anymore, because I'm no longer at the government, but the DOJ's policy is that uh, prosecutors should not be issuing subpoenas to entities they view as targets of investigations. Now, the SEC doesn't have that same restriction, but still, I do want to emphasize that a subpoena is just a way for the government to get information. So when I was a federal prosecutor, I issued hundreds, if not thousands, of subpoenas in my time. And, you know, very, very few of those actually turned into investigations or cases. And so you feel
0: like maybe the panic that we're seeing in the crypto space is a little
1: bit more like FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt? I think there's a little of that, Laura. But I mean, again, not to minimize the impact that an SEC subpoena does have on an entity or an individual, uh, particularly for individuals or entities that aren't familiar with interacting with enforcement bodies or regulators. I don't want to minimize the seriousness or you know what they might be feeling. But I, I really doubt what we're going to see is 80 different ICO actions just because of that number of subpoenas being reported as having gone out. That's, that's my only point.
0: So another action that we saw recently from the government was a letter from FinCEN. And I know also some people in the community were freaking out about that because apparently it has some implications with the Bank Secrecy Act, where the penalties can be quite severe if you violate that. So what was your take on that FinCEN letter?
1: Yeah, you're right. The penalties for violating the Bank Secrecy Act, or BSA, as it's called, can be even criminal, um, and they can be really stiff monetary penalties. You're talking about $25,000 a day per violation. So they can really add up. But that said, um my take on the recent FinCEN letter was I think that it's not as big as deal as some people are making in the space. And I'll tell you why. I mean, I, I recently heard a few different people, including this weekend at South by Southwest, on some of the cryptocurrency panels. People were describing it as FinCEN enforcement or FinCEN guidance. And it's actually neither of those things. I mean, it, what it was was responding to a letter um, from Senator Ron Wyden. And so routinely agencies get letters from congressmen or senators asking, do you have sufficient authorities to deal with these new technologies or these new kind of creations? And FinCEN here was merely responding to that letter saying, yes, yes we have sufficient authorities, we have our Bank Secrecy Act authority. And here are all the authorities we have. So in some way, I would take some comfort in that FinCEN is not asking for new statutory authorities. They're not saying they need new laws to go after people in the cryptocurrency space.
0: Oh, interesting. Well, that actually relates to an op-ed that came out recently saying that there should be a new regulatory body or maybe even new regulation. What, what do you make of that proposal?
1: Well, I think for the regulatory body, I think you're talking about the New York Times op-ed that came out where there was a call, I believe, to ask for a new regulator for cryptocurrency. And I actually just don't think that solves anything. I actually think that makes the situation worse. And I think, again, there is a feeling in this space that the community is shying away from regulation. I don't think that's correct at all. I don't think the community is shying away from regulation. I think what's what's harmful is regulatory uncertainty. So I do think that large parts of the community want to know what the regu- state of regulatory affairs is. Um, but I don't think that a new cryptocurrency regulator would help. And I actually think it would hurt um, for a couple reasons. I mean, one, I don't think that you would see other entities standing back and letting this new cryptocurrency regulator do everything. So I think then it's just adding another, it's adding another regulatory body into the mix. And then there's also questions about, well, is this... For example, particular case, a case of white collar or pure fraud, or is it cryptocurrency? Which regulatory body gets it? I think that still exists, even if you have a new cryptocurrency regulator.
0: Right. So it might be something like the Internet where everybody needs to learn about it and the areas where that applies then. You know, you would still stick with the traditional agency.
1: Well, that's exactly right. I mean, when the internet came out, we didn't have different uh, an internet, you know, regulatory body being stood up. Instead, what we had is kind of what we're seeing now. We had different enforcement and regulatory bodies. Whether you're talking about DOJ, SEC, CFTC, um, and and all the myriad agencies trying to figure out what their piece was, the FCC, the FTC, and in the end we didn't see those agencies all kind of trying to vie for the same cases. They were all able to figure that out. And that happens a lot, Laura, in the regulatory enforcement space. I mean, I used to prosecute, example is murders. I prosecuted a lot of murders. You know, murders can be state crime. They could be a crime in one state or another. If there was transportation across state lines, they could also be federal. So you know, th- this is nothing new in the legal or regulatory context to have different kinds of regulatory or enforcement bodies able to do the same type of topic. So
0: before we get to our next topics, well, want to circle back to your work at DOJ and also talk about self-regulation. A quick word from one of our fabulous sponsors, Preciate. Founded by Ed Stevens, Preciate is building the most valuable relationships on Earth. Today, Appreciate is recognizing an individual for his achievements in the crypto space. Jimmy Song, a respected crypto innovator, announced a new initiative, Platypus Labs. Platypus is focused on funding residencies and fellowships for developers in the blockchain space, many of whom are not paid when contributing to core protocols like Bitcoin. Jimmy Song gets the visionary award. Way to go, Jimmy. Listeners, if you know someone in crypto who should be recognized, take action and go to slash recognize That's slash recognize This special South by Southwest episode of Unconfirmed is also brought to you by Quantstamp. Founded in the aftermath of the DAO hack, Quantstamp is the first smart contract security auditing protocol designed to secure all smart contracts in a cost-effective and scalable manner. Relying on humans to audit smart contracts is expensive and error-prone, and with the exploding growth, that solution won't scale. The team at Quantstamp has built a solution to audit smart contracts on the Ethereum network in an automated and decentralized way that can scale with growing demand. With a team composed of blockchain and software testing experts who collectively have over 500 Google Scholar citations, Quantstamp is paving the way for safer and more reliable smart contracts that will power the decentralized world. To learn more or request an audit, visit quantstamp.com. I'm talking with Catherine Hahn, former prosecutor and professor at Stanford University. So I wanted to ask you to bring us back to that original topic of the SEC when you see that they are maybe wanting to talk to different 80 different issuers. How do you think they'll go through the process of selecting which ones to um,
1: bring enforcement actions against? Well, I can really only speak to what, for example, Justice Department would be thinking, because I know people that are working on these types of things in the Justice Department. I'm not as familiar with what the SEC process is, but I can just tell you from a general perspective of a former government attorney, looking at the cryptocurrency field, one of the things you have is you have lots of different opportunities for investigations or cases, but you actually have few resources. I mean, and I know everyone always thinks the government has unlimited resources. Um, and I think when you're talking about people who actually understand this technology or have the appetite to kind of do these cases, you are talking about a more finite number of people. And so what ends up happening is you really can't go after every single potential regulatory infraction or you know, law being broken, nor would you want to. I mean, I don't think any of us want to live in a world where anyone who breaks the law or regulation at any time is is punished. And there aren't the resources to do that anyway. So one of the things I used to think about when I was in the government is really, what are the worst of the worst? Sure, we have, you know, I'm just making up these numbers here. Let's say that we had 10,000 different infractions or laws being broken. Maybe the FBI would investigate 1,000 of those. And maybe of those, they would bring me, the prosecutor at that time, the 100 best ones. Well, I wasn't going to do 100 cases. Maybe I need to pick 10 from my own resources. I'm just, again, making these numbers up. So I'm going to focus on the 10 really worst of the worst, the ones where there's really no question that there's been some clear wrongdoing under the clearly under law that was kind of clearly established and i know there's a lot of murky areas out there now but as a prosecutor as a former prosecutor what you want to do is you know you have to assume before you bring an action before you bring an indictment that the person or the entity on the other side is going to say i'm taking you to trial that's their right to do that and in that case you want to be absolutely sure that you're going to be able to convince a jury of 12 randomly selected folks that there is no question that what was done was wrong and illegal. And that's no easy feat, Laura, especially in some jurisdictions, um, to get 12 people to agree on that. So I think that, you know, that was DOJ's process, Is is there any question we could get 12 people to agree this was the worst of the worst? And I think that's how DOJ will approach, for example, the ICO space, because I do think that it's only a matter of time before they start prosecuting some of the ICO projects. Um, But I think, again, I think they're really going to focus on the worst of the worst. They're not going to go to the gray areas. And I largely think the SEC is going to do the same. I think they'll also look to, you know, how much money was raised, where were the victims, were, were money lost, so are there victims. These are important questions. Interesting. Okay,
0: so maybe a lot of the commentary I've seen on Twitter really is FUD because <laughs> it's very sobering to hear your perspective. We're not sobering, but just it is a contrast.
1: Um, well, so I, I wanted. To, oh, I'm sorry, Laura. I was just going to say I recently heard Jay Clayton speak, and he pointed out that the SEC has four thousand people. Now that might sound like a lot, but it's actually that's not a ton of personnel. If you think about DOJ, there are hundred ten thousand um oh, wow. personnel there. And with uh, Department of Homeland Security, 240,000. So if you think about the size, the massive size of some of these agencies, SEC, 4,000 people, it's actually not a ton. And keep in mind, they're not only around to enforce the cryptocurrency space or the ICO projects, right? They have a lot of other priorities that they're supposed to be focused on. And so if you think of that, they really need to come up with some of the worst of the worst, like There are lots of pure fraud in this space in terms of some of the ICO projects we've seen, like think of the Ryan Gosling (laughs) recent um, episode And, and others like that, where people have really lost a lot of money, and there were a lot of U.S. victims, and this really was a security, and there's really no question about it. Not these gray areas. I could be wrong, of course. Maybe the SEC will surprise us and come out in the gray areas, but I don't think so, because ultimately... The person on the other end or the entity on the other end could put them to the challenge and take them to court and fight it. And then that's not going to be a case the the first SEC ICO action, I mean, I know there have already been some, of course, but the first one that gets fought out in court, the SEC is not going to want to lose that. Oh, that's, that is true. I could definitely see that. Well,
0: one thing I wanted to ask you about was there's been a lot of talk of self regulation using what's called token rec- curated
1: registries or, or really just any, any form of self regulation. What do you think of that idea? I think self regulation is great in this space. You mentioned a new regulator and I'm pretty opposed to having a new regulator or even new laws, by the way, and we can come back to that. Um, I'm not at all opposed to self regulation. I think that's great. And here's why. I think the, community knows the space the best. The regulators, they're still catching up, right? And I remember this being in DOJ. It was like, as soon as we thought we had figured out Bitcoin, along comes Ethereum. And now we're in the land of relays and airdrops. And it's just getting more and more complex. And so I don't favor new laws because laws are meant to endure for a few years, at least. And in this space, things are changing so rapidly and the tech is changing so rapidly. Just think about if they had passed a cryptocurrency-specific law last year or two years ago. It would well, be... New York State did with the bit license. Exactly. And, and look right now, people are already saying some of that is outdated. And law is meant to answer a question, not create many more questions. Unfortunately, sometimes it does both. Um, but in the case of the bit license, it created a whole host of new questions. And that's even more true as the technology has developed further. So I think um, that it's really premature to be having new laws just because of the rapid pace that things are changing. And this was the same in the internet, right? We didn't have a specific law just for the Internet. Instead, we had a very similar pattern here. Now, eventually, we did get the Communications Decency Act Section 230 for the Internet, but that was many years into the making. So I think it's pretty premature for new laws, but not to your question for self-regulation. I think, especially if you have large parts of the community coming together and coming up with best practices and best principles I really think that's important. I think if they're sound, they're something that are really convincing for regulatory bodies and um, enforcement bodies. And I can tell you firsthand, having been in the shoes of those individuals, that we look to stuff like that. Um, If there is certainly an industry standard that develops and it's not followed by a certain actor, that's something that the government takes into account. And I think um, principles for self-regulation are also so important in this space because Again, the technology is changing so rapidly that it's also just educational, frankly, for regulators. I don't mean to make it sound like they don't have any clue about what's going on. I'm not saying that at all. And certain of these agencies have really dedicated small but dedicated task forces that are really charged with keeping up to date on the technology. But it's hard. And I think that where the community comes up with some best practices, I think that's really persuasive and it's very powerful.
0: Yeah, and it sounds like such a body would be more nimble to keep up with with new trends in the crypto space. So yeah, that well, seems like another benefit.
1: That's exactly right. And I think we saw a little bit this in some of the modern, uh, I'm sorry, the uniform state law that got proposed and then I guess enacted last summer for some of the money state transmitting Licenses. Yeah, but then only some states signed on or something right. like that. But the point being that, um, you know, you had an advocacy or lobbying group like Coin Center really active and who really is so knowledgeable in this space. And then the Chamber of Digital Commerce and things like entities like those. Um, but I think it's also imperative that it's not just those groups, but it's also leading companies in the space um, and projects also. Great. Well, it's been so fantastic having you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Laura.
0: Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about the topics we discussed, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast episode. New episodes of Unconfirmed come out every Friday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you liked this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Fractal Recording and Elaine Zelby. Thanks for listening.